I came across this quote, I think back in seminary, and I've always held on to it and probably quoted it to a bunch of college students when I worked with them is it's the, the one from Frederick Beekner. And it says that your passion, your vocation, your calling in life is where your deepest gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. So it's, it's where your deepest gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. So it's not just about what makes you glad, but there's also a deep hunger that exists in the world. And those two things come together and that's often can form your, your calling. So it, it, I think that's for me has always been a, maybe a filter by which to, to ask people to think about their passion. This is the interesting lives of normal people. This is a particularly fun episode for me because we talk with David Burke, a pastor at a church in Sacramento, California, but he's also a former boss and a longtime mentor and friend. I've had a lot of conversations with David over the years, but to be honest, we usually just talk about me, you know, the whole mentor thing. But one thing I love about doing this podcast is that we get to put other people in the hot seat. I got to hear about his life growing up with a dad who was an atheist and a professor of philosophy at the University of Washington. We also talk about his journey of change, and we talk about one of his passion projects, supporting his wife's art business, which is really refreshing in a culture where there's a lot of misogynistic Christian leaders. David also talks about past passion projects that have succeeded and failed, and what he's learned from those experiences. We also end the conversation when he gives a glimpse into what the church could and should be. If there's a word that sums up this conversation, for me, it's refreshing. It was refreshing to be reminded that there are still good Christian leaders, and frankly, it was just refreshing just to connect with David again. I hope it's as refreshing to you as it was for me. David Burke, a pastor, a good friend. Thank Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, awesome to be with you guys. Yeah, this is, as as you know, like we are kind of endeavoring to make a podcast, making something that is uh, useful and just, you know, kind of giving people information and inspiration to kind of do something uh, powerful and meaningful with their life. Um, uh, David and I are, you know, I've known David for really a long time, used to work for him in a ministry out in Tennessee as when he was a college pastor. Uh, but David, why don't you just give us a little bit more of a background on who you are, uh, kind of how you got to Sacramento, where you're living now. Uh, just give us a little bit of a uh, overview of you know, as fast or slow as you want of your life and career. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Seattle, Washington, um, <clears throat> was the son of a university professor and an atheist for a good chunk of my life, which I always think is kind of important to include in thinking about then becoming a pastor. But uh, fast forward, went to a small college in uh, California, uh, became a follower of Christ uh, uh, when I was about 16 years old, uh, tried to kind of make a faith journey happen on my own for several years, uh, graduated from college um, and started volunteering in a ministry in Seattle. And from that got exposed uh, to a ministry, another ministry in Boulder, Colorado, uh, ended up going to seminary, uh, New Jersey, Princeton Theological Seminary. And the time that I think I had growing up as a university kid and having volunteered with some college students um, when I was right out of college really gave me a heart for that age group because I think like what you're talking about here on your podcast, that uh, that 18 to 22 year, year range of, of people's lives are making huge decisions uh, about um, who they're going to be with, uh, some of them for the rest of their lives, what they're going to study, what they're going to prepare for and all that. So. Uh, fast forward, finished seminary, um, and my first call, my first job was to this this college ministry um, called, which ended up being called the House and University Ministries in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is where Jake and I met. And uh, I, I just made this incredible hire uh, when I decided to call him. It was just like uh, incredible. I mean, the ministry's never been the same. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> See, I don't believe that because I road tripped out to Chattanooga with him. So I know exactly who Jake was right before that. <laughs> yeah. Risky. Risky, huh? Yeah. It's it's more like a, it was like a prodigal son, just minus the son and prodigal part. <laughs> but um, I mean, let's just be honest, like interns are important people, as I as I thought when I went into that job. Some of, some of them think they are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
how was how was it to you you covered a lot of ground there up till that job between Seattle and California and New Jersey yeah. and then starting your college ministry in Chattanooga was that easy was that hard just you know obviously very different very different kind of cultures in all those different places the southeast is a whole different kind of culture and um, most people there uh, grow up in you know they call it the bible belt uh, and some people even call Chattanooga the buckle of the bible belt and uh, it's the really essential part of of that whole culture so I guess the best illustration I always would use with people and I try to explain you know to people where I live now, it's, it's, it's not uncommon there to ask somebody, you know, in our age range, you know, what do you do for a living? And then your second question is, where do you go to church? That's just part of the culture that exists out there. And it was, I think it was really interesting for us. We hired a lot of interns from these kind of sister ministries of Seattle and Boulder that did not grow up in that culture. And for college students that grew up in Tennessee to see these people that, had kind of learned how to articulate and communicate about their faith in environments where it wasn't the norm was refreshing. Um, but the South was really a pretty interesting, I felt at times a little bit like, I, I don't want to say this the right way, but like a missionary always studying the culture because it was so vastly different than any other place that I'd ever lived. Um, so there was uh, a lot, uh, if I can speak kind of boldly about it, is there was a lot of apathy frankly, about Christianity or following Christ, uh, following the person of Jesus. Like it, it was common for us to run into students and this, oh yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. And, and they lived in environments where they, that might be their identity, but it didn't impact mm. what they, what they did on a daily basis. Yeah. It was more of a resume item than a, than a, than a passion or something. Yeah. Hmm. I, I do want to point out that I feel like you covered a lot of ground there fairly efficiently. Um, you don't by chance publicly speak on a regular basis, do you, David? <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, so now oh, if, if you're wanting to, to build a bridge to the current. Um, <clears throat> so um, after 16 years of living in Chattanooga, um, I was called to, uh, to be a, a pastor at a church here called Fremont Presbyterian Church in Sacramento. And uh, it was a draw to me because it sits one block away from a, a major university, Sacramento State University, which is at about 30,000 students. Um, like I said, I've always loved university communities and kind of the, the questions and culture that that brings. And uh, Fremont felt like a great fit. Um, a part of it um, is that it's had a long uh, uh, history of a, of a people group in Ethiopia. And I mentioned that because my wife and I adopted twins from Ethiopia um, now 10, 10 years ago. So we've had a heart for that country and this church has a heart for that country. Um, and, uh, it also has a heart for the university. So those things kind of merged together in my life and God's call. And, and they they took a chance on a, on a guy that never been a pastor of a local church before. I do, before we actually get into, I wasn't actually intending to try to go there. I do want to talk about obviously your current position and all. Um, but something that I feel like I maybe have never asked, talked to you about before is really just the environment of growing up in a university. I mean, your pastor, your father being um, a university professor, atheist, even the environment that you lived in, because it was, it was kind of interesting. Like, as you know, like you've for a long time been, if I'm honest, just a role model to me and a, a mentor in a lot of ways. And um, so it was, it was funny, like when I moved to Seattle, actually going to your old neighborhood and being like, oh, this is where David grew up. Like this is. And just thinking about someone who I respect so much and just thinking about like, this is his, this is where he, so many experiences happen and not that your, the, your neighborhood, I'm sure it's so different now than when you grew up because Seattle is just completely transformed in the last few years. No thanks to Microsoft. Um, <laughs> but I do think it's, I do think it's interesting just to think about like, what was that environment like as a kid? Not even just being close to the university where you grew up, but like, what was it actually like being so ingrained in a, in a scholarly environment, or was it a scholarly environment that you grew up in? Like, what was, what was kind of day to day, like interaction with your dad? I, I mean, again, if you're okay with it, I, I don't think I've yeah. talked to you much about your dad. Oh, that's good. That's good. Mike. Um, yeah. To, to answer one of the questions in there, I still remember as a kid, I have an older brother who's four years older than me and, and, uh, um, dinner conversations revolved around, uh, he was a philosophy professor. So, hmm rationality, uh, reason, um, and, and intellect and being able to reason your way through life 
was one of the highest values that I remember as a kid. You needed to be able to argue your point, even at the dinner table. Hmm. Um, so um, intellectual pursuits um, would bring you, you know, I remember just thinking and being told in, in either words or just what I remember picking up from my parents is like, hey, you, you have to do well in school. Because if you do well in school, then you'll go to a good college. And if you go to a good college, then you'll get a good job. And if you have a good job, then you'll have a good life. Like that's, that was just how it what was going to be. And, and ironically, we lived down the street from a Lutheran church. And I remember as a, as a kid, my dad kind of laughing, oh, there goes crazy Lutherans. And I remember thinking that faith was intellectually weak. It was intellectually um, missing. Uh, you know, Christians were people that needed some sort of crutch to lean on. So I do remember a lot of that as a kid. Uh, one of your other questions in there was, you know, did my dad, was my dad still alive? My dad passed away in 2008. And I actually brought him into the decision-making process on where to go to seminary. Um, I felt like I wanted to respect him. Um, he had colleagues that had actually gone to seminary in the philosophy department. So he kind of counseled me on some of that. So yeah, he, he, uh, he did. We, we had interesting discussions about faith. Um, towards the end of his life, when I went out to go to care for him after a surgery, um, we had a lot. Of, I remember him saying that the idea of faith, having faith in something, was intellectually fascinating to him. That was what he said. The idea of having faith was intellectually fascinating. He couldn't get himself there, but he found it interesting what it did for people. Um, and he himself had grown up Catholic and, and I think kind of tanked all that when he went to college in the 60s. Um, but, uh, so he knew some of it, but, um, I think kind of dismissed it completely later. How was it? You know, it sounds like you kind of went a different path than maybe he would have had for you with your career. How, how did that play out? Sort of making your own choices. Where was, you know, I'm kind of curious for in your own mind, what did you think would happen? And then what, what actually did happen there? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'll give my both my mom and dad a lot of respect because they didn't push. Like, you know, some parents say, "Hey, you know, you got to, you got to be this." You know, our family does this or whatever. And I, th when I started making those choices, they never really said, "No, you can't do that" or anything like that. Now they were concerned about some things, obviously. I mean, they, I think on one level, my dad was concerned that I was devoting my life and he would say my intellect to something that he found always suspect um, and questioned, but he never really, you know, he always looked at some of the, the good things that we would do in ministry, whether it being helping a, a, an impoverished community or, um, you know, those kinds of counseling students, you know, he always would kind of try to focus on the good things there, but he never really expressed a disappointment in what I chose to do. And I think that that's, I give him a, a tremendous amount of respect and, and um, glad about that. That um, when you ultimately came to faith, did that hyper rationality uh, lead you into any certain directions, you know, with like apologetics or, or being, you know, sometimes um, there are people who, who are so heady and intellectual and even, you know, kind of like jerks for Jesus kind of thing where they're kind of like, they're going to yeah. pound you with these, yeah. these intellectual, these philosophical points until, you know, people either quit or, or call them an a-hole and walk off. Did you, did you find yourself like, yeah, not that you, that was you, but maybe like given, you know, that sort of rationality, you have to argue your point. Um, was that there for you at all? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, you know, I would like to say no. And this is what popped into my mind while you were asking that question. I remember as a 16 year old, and there's a long story about how faith became real for me. And it had a lot to do with the fact that I did not see my dad living out what he preached, in other words. Like, he didn't have a resource to deal with the pain that he was experiencing. It ended up in a divorce with my mom. And, and he, uh, you know, to be frank, he, he turned to alcohol. And I watched that when my older brother was away from college. And I remember watching that and going, wait a minute, here's this man that's preached rationality to me. And yet he's choosing to deal with the pain of his life and something very irrational, which led to a lot of irrational behavior. And that made me start asking some questions about whether what he said was real. So, um, you know, just to condense that thought, um, somebody handed me a Gideon's Bible. I started reading it and it was way different than what I thought. 
it, uh, and I was introduced to the Bible through the Psalms. And that's a really interesting place to start reading about God. And, and it spoke to where I was at the time. But to get back to your question about apologetics, I remember this, you know, after kind of, you know, making a commitment and believing that, that Jesus was real, I'm going to convert my dad, right? Like 16 year old and he's, he's got a PhD, right? <laughs> and so I remember like talking to him about the existence of God and all these arguments and stuff like that. And he, he was very painless and he goes, you know, that argument's pretty good, but if you really want a better argument, it's this, 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 and this. And then he poked holes in all that. And I just remember my, my head kind of exploding and going, oh, that was a big mistake. <laughs> so hmm. I think one of my first experiences at trying to be an apologetics guy was a, was a miserable failure. <laughs> And I also came to realize that in reading some, my dad was a Marxist philosopher and reading some of his stuff, that one of his favorite words was esoteric, which is like, you know, it's reserved for a few, you know? And I also started to realize the majority of people don't live in that world, don't live in that world. So, you know, like you said, like apologetics is important. And I've always been drawn to Christian thinkers that have a sharp intellect and can reason and, and write beautifully and eloquently but it's got to reach people it's got to reach as many people as you can you got to be able to write in a way or explain yourself in a way that makes sense to somebody and isn't so like isolated and um you know my dad's word esoteric is you know it's just it's it's reserved for a few i want to get back to kind of modern day or current day kind of what you're doing now you mentioned church in sacramento um and some of the things it's passionate about, you know, reaching people at Sacramento State. Is that the right school? Mm -hmm. they say? That's right. Yep. And, and also Ethiopia as a country in general, like some of those things really. So maybe talk a little bit about the, the congregation itself, like the types of people that you have that actually attend. Like, what has your experience been like um, at this, I want to say new church, but you've been there, I guess, a while, huh? Uh, here's kind of the bio on Fremont. It's a 150-year-old church. It was actually started, uh, the history says, by a couple college-age uh, people uh, 150 years ago that were seeing a lot of kids. This was like gold rush time and seeing a lot of kids running around the, the neighborhood. And they, so they started a Sunday school. So Fremont kind of started from those roots, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, and, and started downtown, kind of moved its way out. We're in what's called East Sacramento. Um, and it was intentionally planted there in the 1960s by some elders when they discovered that the university was going to go there. So they intentionally wanted to be the church for the university. And for a long time, um, Fremont was the who's who of Sacramento. I would say now that we still have some of those folks in our midst, but that's not what, what we're known for, you know, really. Uh, the people of Fremont, um, so there's a lot of folks, there's a lot of healthcare, uh, a lot of folks that work for the state, um, entrepreneurs, uh, students, uh, single moms, uh, single dads. Um, and so it's, it's pretty wide variety. Um, and we have, uh, we, we kind of, we're our church with, uh, I, I feel at times uh, that I'm pastoring two churches. And what I mean is this, is that um, we have a traditional service that meets in our 1960s sanctuary with super high cathedral kind of ceilings. And I often wear a robe and we have a choir and an organ. And then I change clothes and I wear, you know, golf shirt and jeans and, you know, bands or something. And, and I go preach in a gym um, with a contemporary band and people come as they are. Um, and so it's it's two very different views almost of what the church um, is about. Um, uh, maybe even different views of what I need to be and what the church should be. A lot of folks that remember when Fremont was something um, and a lot of people that are like, nah, I just want to bring my kids here and, and y'all have great, you know, ministry to them. We do a lot of things in the community. We run a basketball league. We have a partnership with a public uh, elementary school about uh, five miles away from us that my wife actually is the art teacher at this school. And, this school is, uh, uh, do you have Title I where you are? Is, it, is that a federal thing? A Title I school? Uh, it usually means like a lower socioeconomic or, okay, so so uh, the, the elementary school where she works is, is a Title I school and our church provides a grant so that they can have an art teacher and my wife is the art teacher. So Fremont has had this cool history of really starting partnerships with people group internationally and a school locally and I think that's what it's known for is, is doing some great things in the, the neighborhood. 
so we'd ask you like, what are some successful passion projects you've seen from people specifically in midlife? And you kind of answered, it looks like, um, your wife, Kelsey, around this idea of being an artist. Can you expand on like what that project looks like and what it is? Yeah. I, you know, I asked her if it would be okay. She goes, yeah, absolutely. Um, because I, I get to live with it, not with it, but I get to live with seeing this passion project come to life. Um, so, um, Several years ago for Christmas, I think it was Christmas, I, I, I gave her her first set of pastels and she loved it. She's always been artistic and had been able to draw and paint and all this kind of stuff. But I gave her her first set of pastels and she just has fallen and she has a gift for it. Um, does a lot of landscapes and commissions and things like that. We took one of her, our, the bedrooms in our house and we turned it into her studio. Um, and then from, you know, there was a downtown gallery that, that uh, she got to know the, the owner of and they loved her work so much that they totally put all of her works in it for I think a month in the summer and 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 so I'm watching kind of her discover how to be an entrepreneur um, I wouldn't call my wife midlife that would be you know that would be bad uh, uh, marriage advice right there to call your wife midlife. late 20s but you know she's um, I'm 50 uh, yeah that's, yeah I'm 50 and she's a few years younger than me but uh, you know she's been we have six kids and um, our youngest is in third grade. And um, so most of her life, um, our lives together has been, uh, she's had babies at home and full-time mom and has been doing speaking and writing on the side. Um, but the art has really started to take off. So she, I mean, even tonight was uploading videos, uh, YouTube, uh, online art lessons for this uh, elementary school uh, where she works. and and. Uh, you know, so she's doing speaking and writing, um, painting and teaching um, all together. So it's it's the season of life where she has a little bit more margin. And together we try to work out times where I have to study or times she's got to do creative work. Um, and it's fun to watch her really um, live into something that she's been gifted to do and passionate about and obviously is meeting a, a need for people. That's really cool. How does, I mean, how does it feel to have input? You know, you understood a little bit about this passion, but to have contributed to your partner kind of really discovering this net new level of passion around this with the pastels. I mean, what, tell me about that and, and what that feels like to have contributed in that way. I joke at, at, you know, we do do these art showings and stuff like that. And I always like tell her on the way, I said, Hey, I'm going to tell everybody that I'm the one that got you the first set of pastels and I never do, but, um, <laughs> But, you know, it's, uh, it's really a beautiful thing to see someone that you love um, that's gifted. And she just comes alive when she went and, and to see the joy. I mean, we have the chance when people come over and pick up their painting to see the look on their face. And, and sometimes it's a commission of a, of a spot that is meaningful, like one that she just did with the wildfires out here. There was a home that was just destroyed that had been in the family's home, families in a family for about four generations. And she did a painting of it. And to give that to that family is just, it's, it's kind of priceless, right? So um, I think it's fun for me. It was, you know, I was putting up shelves just a couple of weekends. So I joke with her. I said, Hey, you've got to get, get this thing off the ground so I can quit <laughs> and I'll just carry your art stuff around and, you know, and carry your books around when you write the book and, you know, I'll be your, your book book table guy when she starts she's also a really gifted teacher and speaker and she does a lot of women's ministry stuff here in our church and so i just always say hey you write your book she's actually is writing one you write your book and i'll just carry your books one thing that i that i think is really cool about this answer of like what are some successful passion projects you've seen which is i think that you know myself like you know you're definitely a few years ahead of you know having babies uh, but as you know like babies and sleep and you know trying to communicate with kids that don't know how to talk. It's exhausting. It's everything's messy. Not yep. to say that having six kids, even being older is not messy, but you know what I mean? It's definitely a unique part of time when you have toddlers and babies. Um, and so much of your time is just spent on, okay, we woke up. I can't wait till we get to go back to bed. <laughs> like, like, yep. and like, okay, we have this huge thing in between the two sleeps that we call life. And we got to just kind of get from one point A to point B. Um, and so, so often we're focused on just making it to the end of the day, making it till bedtime so we can finally relax. Um, but then like for me, like I look at something like this podcast or wanting to do something meaningful and searching for something um, that 
is that searching for something that is meaningful that makes sense that I think I can actually contribute. Um, but I feel like a lot of times we kind of forget, especially with, you know, my wife is a stay at home mom too. You kind of forget that. I mean, selfishly, we, I just get, we get wrapped up so often in like, am I happy? Am I doing what I'm passionate about? And actually getting to see your wife who really has been, whose job in life is just being a mom, which I know they enjoy, obviously, but they have things and desires and passions. They have loves of other things and, and hobbies and talents that they, they want to express and actually getting to see that come to life must be incredibly satisfying. I mean, even more so than finding something for yourself, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I don't think she'd mind me saying that, you know, it was fun to be, I guess, her chief encourager or cheerleader because, you know, art, fine art is a, it, it's so subjective and it's maybe hard to kind of believe. And she's never taken a class, right? So she didn't have a degree or any of that. So, so she'd always would, would be saying, yeah, oh, I don't even, I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm just painting. And yet it was always received well, but it wasn't until I would say maybe the last year that she's been able to say, no, I'm an artist. But before that, like it had to be me or other people go, uh, you're an artist. <laughs> like, look, you know, and, and, and she, you know, being able to show somebody and, you know, I, I like to call, maybe this sounds like bragging, but she was away speaking, I think on a women's retreat or something. And that was the weekend I chose to totally turn this room into a studio. And I cleaned it out and bought uh, an art desk and I put Kelsey Burke created, which is the name of her website, you know, on it. And, and, and she still talks about that. That was a really like a vote of confidence to say, you know, yeah, you can do this um, and I want to support you. Um, uh, that's a great story of having helped someone deal with that imposter syndrome concept, right? That we all struggle with and especially trying to tackle a passion outside of our careers. Cause something about something about showing up Monday through Friday, eight hours a day makes it feel official and everything else feels like we're imposters. <laughs> yeah, that's a great phrase. And I think the other thing, going back to what you were saying, Jake, about, uh, about kind of moms, especially, um, dads too that that give up something of their identity for a season of life when kids are little especially when I, you know i hear all these stories and my wife has been doing this this women's ministry at our church and you know some of the women have talked honestly about you know they've got law degrees design degrees uh they were entrepreneurs they had their own business and then they had kids and all that gets put on hold and that's a really it's a tough shift to tough shift to give up something that you love and what you wonder whether you're ever going to get to do it again. Um, and uh, her getting to walk some of these younger moms through that has been really fun to see too. It really makes you wonder why we're interviewing you and not Kelsey. Just <laughs> no, my wife, I know. I know. <laughs> She's right. She's right there. <laughs> <laughs> we skipped over. You, you said Ethiopia and college students are passions of yours and that helped lead you to making the choice to take the risk to move back across the country to take this job at Fremont. But I'm, I am curious about the college student passion and the Ethiopia passion. And how did you get to that, that place? Yeah. So I guess I'll start with the Ethiopia one first. Um, so, you know, a lot of times, we, you know, I've never done anything like this, but when I say, Oh, we have six kids, what's behind that story is that we actually had a lot of difficulty getting pregnant lost a child in pregnancy and for a season we thought that adoption would would be maybe the, one of the only ways that uh, we would have children um we did have a child our oldest son hudson is now 19. jake if you can believe that he's 19 years old and, and um but we had a, a season where we really were looking at adoption and uh, um so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story because i, I think it speaks to some other passions that might come out later. So I remember we went to an adoption agency in Chattanooga and they handed us two notebooks. This was like an introductory kind of thing just to explain the process. And I still remember they handed us two notebooks and one was uh, pretty thin uh, and one was pretty thick and, and opened them up and, and the, the thin one were all of the Caucasian babies. And there were not that many uh, that were, you know, available for adoption. Um, and to that, they said, yeah, the waiting list 
time for a Caucasian baby would be about, uh, I think they said something like two years. And then, it, and we said, well, what's this other notebook? And the other notebook were black and biracial babies, tons of all ages. And they said, and the waiting time there is about six to nine months. And I remember that, that situation and going, wow, there's a, there's a sad reality there. Um, and that, that became, I think that was one of our um, first thoughts for us about entering into adopting a child from a different culture or a different race. Um, Jake, were you on staff when we went then to, I think you were, when we went to the Willow Creek conference where you, where Bono spoke? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You remember that? Yep. And he, and he spoke about uh, Africa. That Kelsey and I still talk about that as being one of the places where Ethiopia got on our radar because we learned at that point uh, the number of orphans that were in Ethiopia. So, you know, fast forward, uh, it was a longer process. Uh, we we started reading New York Times bestseller books about Ethiopia and the situation there, whether it was not just uh, children that were orphaned because of AIDS, but famine, civil war. Uh, all kinds of things, and our heart just was tugged for that country. I can't explain it really. So um, we adopted um, our twins. Their names are Simone and Justice, um, and um, um, we brought them home when they were 18 months old, and they're, they turned 11 this past February. Um, and so to tie in the, the call to Fremont, uh, it was really you know, people throw this around a lot, but I'm just going to say it was kind of one of those God things where God only knew the elements of my story. And then when I see this description, I still remember the first few lines were like, Fremont Presbyterian Church is looking for a senior pastor uh, to preach and teach and shepherd the staff. And that was something that some people that I've been working with were saying, hey, those are, those are who you are. And then it said, we sit at uh, the gate of Sacramento State University. We've had a 20-year partnership with Ethiopia, and we run this uh, community basketball program. That was all like in the first few sentences. And as Jake could attest, uh, you know, there was the, the college element. I always wanted to work for a university church, the Ethiopia piece. And then I was accused of playing an enormous amount of basketball with college students when I lived in Chattanooga. <laughs> so here was this whole thing of, of the description of like, we're a block away from a university. We have a partnership with the Ethiopia and we run a basketball program. It's like that's the top three thing. Mm. That's yeah. actually yeah. Playing I believe this is true, Jake. Playing basketball in Chattanooga is where I mean I know that's where you tore your ACL, but also that's where you learned your athletic. Well, that's where I was running. My parents came to visit and I was just playing intramural football and I was just running on the field and they're like, Wow, we didn't know you could run so fast. I'm like, wow, I mean it's not like it's fast, but I could run. But I think I remember you talking about going out there and playing pickup basketball and sort of discovering you were better at basketball than your self-identity was about about you as a basketball player. And it was sort of out in Chattanooga is where you started to realize that you'd always compared yourself to your older brothers and hadn't really allowed yourself to discover if you were athletic yourself. Yeah, it's where I discovered my inner Dennis Rodman. Just go yeah. get that ball. Yeah. <laughs> Go get it. There was a little of that in you, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> some minus the minus the nose ring and yeah. tattoos. Vegas right. included. So On the say. college student passion front. Sorry, go ahead, Finn. Yeah. I, I just said Vegas included though. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a, that's a Love Vegas. <laughs> um that's a last dance reference, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so David, you've seen in the passion projects you've seen, whether that's with your wife or any number of things that have happened in your ministry or church or wherever. What makes these passion projects soar and what makes them fail? I, I think when I look at some of the things of, of me trying to cast vision, but I also see this with others as well, that that sometimes the folks that have vision or ideas are not the ones that that can incrementally bring about the changes that are needed to make that vision happen. Like you need new good partners, you need a good team. Um, you know, I was talking to, um, you know, the guy that, that I've worked with for 10 years and at the house in Chattanooga, Jason, that Jake also worked with, who's now the director of the house. And I remember talking to him just this past year. And he said he knew that always his role was to help translate 
what I had come back from some conference or my doctoral classes or reading some book, his job was to translate it into the college student life and how it would play out actually in the ministry. And without him, I would, you know, a lot of these things that we did would not, would not take root. Same thing with Kirsten. Kirsten had a remarkable ability to take these kind of ideas and vision and concept and translate it. So I think that's one thing is that, that you got to have good people around you. If you're not a good strategic thinker, a good strategic planner who could see the steps that need to happen to make something a reality. Um, I think that's, that's, that's one crucial part. Um, this one is maybe more particular to the, the doctoral project that I did, which was about the church being an entrepreneur in its community. Um, and in short, it was trying to see if, if the church, not just a local church, but the church, a faith community, combining its resources to put a grocery store in a food desert. That was my doctoral project in, in Chattanooga. But I know that what failed in that is that there were some powers and systems that had been created over time. And so when you're dealing with a, with a, a street that's a quarter mile from downtown, and you want to put a nonprofit in there, um, there are some forces and systems that would like to make some more money off of that than your little nonprofit. And ultimately, a lot of that vision, I think the politics of that area, the financial gain that was, was um, going to be realized by some developers, um, people protecting the real estate, um, that's that that's what I think in, in my case uh, made that fizzle out. I do want to get down to this question about your doctorate. Um, and if you could explain a little bit more about this project that did fail, um, can you tell us what you were attempting to do? Yeah. So um, through, I was taking these classes out at Fuller Seminary in California and, and a lot of it was on the church as mission, re seeing re envisioning the church as an entity and a community that actually looks at the needs of the, of the community around it, the neighborhood around it and seeks to meet those needs. I mean, that was the earliest part of our history as followers of Christ is, is whether it be hospitals or schools or, or things like that. So it's trying to recapture some of that identity of the church. And what I was seeing happen in Chattanooga was that you had this university community that was merging into a, a historic African-American neighborhood, the Martin Luther King Boulevard area. And as I began to talk with longtime residents of that neighborhood and city councilmen, that, that, that it was a food desert. I mean, if you're familiar with that term, there was no access to fresh produce or a grocery store in a one mile radius around that. And what I knew from talking and I began to do research with grocery store owners is that no big, no big box grocery store was going to touch that neighborhood because it was it, the, the profit margin already is in a, in a grocery store is slim and you have college students, little disposable income and a lower socioeconomic group um, with, with a, you know, developers thought, oh, probably not a, a substantial profit to be made there, but a nonprofit whose bottom line, or, you know, it wasn't just about the bottom line and the church often will do things not for the money, hopefully, <laughs> you know, and, and so the idea was to think about, well, how could you mobilize the resources in the church to actually invest in a neighborhood like that? And so my paper was called the entrepreneurial church, mobilizing the church to bring restoration to a neighborhood and uh, Martin Luther King Jr district. And I, you know, in preparation for this podcast, I went on Google maps today and I don't know when it was last updated, but largely that street is still the same, except a developer did go and buy a chunk right off of the boulevard and build student housing behind it. But there's still no grocery store. Uh, there's some restaurants that looks like it really caters to the college students, but that's also could be a, a gentrified kind of neighborhood now where the, Af the predominantly African-American neighborhood still is, is not the needs of the neighborhood are not being met there. So the idea was to try to rally uh, foundations, churches, instead of building more buildings for themselves to build a building for a neighborhood in need. So is this, so is this kind of an entrepreneur, I mean, I know you're saying entrepreneur, but in a, a ministry attempt, <clears throat> an outreach attempt that you were trying to actually get funding, you were actually trying to yep. build a brick and mortar store 
Yep. Um, was was that also part of your doctorate, or did you write your doctorate about that experience? Yeah, the, the, the doctorate was probably, or the paper was more about about the experience. Okay. But I did I did like take uh, a business class on how to run a business plan. I was meeting with city council uh, and uh, local foundations, and ultimately, it became clear that uh, the foundations and some developers had some other ideas for the neighborhood. Uh, mm. So that ultimately won out. So I have two follow-up questions. First, how did you notice that that was, how did you get that idea to begin with? Like what made you actually notice that? Because I feel like that's something that myself, I'm driving around, I don't really pay attention. I mean, I can tell when I'm in a lower economic status neighborhood, um, but I never look to think, oh, where's a grocery store? That's just not yeah. something that I would notice. So I'm curious, like, first of all, how did you notice that? And then secondly, when things actually didn't come together as you'd hoped, was that, was that crushing? Like, what was that experience like to see something that you really hoped would make a difference in people's lives not come to fruition? Like, what did that do to your, your drive to continue on or maybe to try, you know, project yeah. number two? Yeah, that's great. Great question. So the first question, how did I notice, um, you know, Literally, I drove down the street every day on my way to work. That was my exit. That was the, the I drove down. I drove down ML King Boulevard, and and you know Chattanooga has even developed more since I left. But you know you leave downtown, which has kind of been totally refurbished, and Chattanooga is featured as this city that has kind of moved from an industrial to a technology and tourism town. So you leave downtown. Fastest internet in the country. Yeah, that's right. So you. you you leave downtown and, and literally within three blocks, you're on ML King Boulevard and it's boarded up, boarded up buildings, uh, empty lots. And, and then I would take a left turn to go to the office and I, in a block, I'm hitting the brand new apartment style dormitories for UT Chattanooga. And the, the contrast between all of it is just like, Oh my gosh, like what's the deal with this street? And, um, it's hard not to notice. And, and at the time, some of the reading that I was doing, you know, there's this passage in the prophet Isaiah that talks about the people of God will be called the restorers of city streets. And so when you begin reading that kind of stuff and then you're driving by it every day, you start going, wait a minute, maybe the goal of the church should be a restorative one, you know, and, and, and it should be recapturing that identity of restoration of, of a neighborhood. Um, and that's where, and it was about that time that, that this concept of food deserts and healthy food and, and Hey, whole populations of people should not be getting their food from the gas station, you know? And, um, so all of that kind of merged together simultaneously. How did it feel about how it kind of, uh, you know, it it's still, it still has that, like, man, I wish it could have, I, I, I wish what, what, if I had you know, for instance, stayed in the community, you know, that there's a community where there's such longevity of generations that people that live there, that if you're in a particular family, uh, or um, you have access to families like that, there, there's stuff that can get done. But it became really clear. There's two things I think I learned. One, um, outsiders in, in a longstanding community have a hard time getting things done. Like if you're from there, you have it natural in but i was this kid from seattle doing college ministry which people didn't really understand in a church culture anyway um so that was that was kind of maybe one one strike against me the second one was this is that most one of the, the there's a whole chapter in my doctorate about how the language of church and the language of business don't get along very well the churches don't want to be a business and business certainly doesn't want to learn anything from the church and, and you know vice versa and so i had a hard time convincing faith-based communities that a church could actually start a business and it would be a part of their mission and one illustration of that is as i would present this to different groups of church leaders they would then say okay so i get the idea of the grocery store but when are you going to start the church and i would and what they meant was when are you going to start a worship service because that's really what the church yeah. does <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, like what they would, what they, what they would say back to me was like, okay, it's great. You want to help provide people with food and all this kind of stuff. But, 
but um, when are you going to start plant a church? And I would go, no, no, no. See, th- we're being the church by doing this. Were they trying to pigeonhole you or were they trying to, f- to investigate your motives? I, I, I think, I think all the above. I, th- I think that they could go, Oh, okay. So here's this, here's this at the time, young, young college ministry. Yeah. We could see him being a church planner. Yeah. That makes sense to us. Um, and then, but I also don't, I think that, that they really didn't understand what I was talking about. Like, and I would have to say, I'm not talking about starting a worship service, but in that era, you know, this was some time ago in that, in that time, church equals a worship service where people can make decisions to follow Christ. And that's what the real work of the church is. So um, you can, in a conservative uh, Christian mindset, sometimes uh, all you have to do is say something like, oh, that sounds like social gospel. And meaning like a gospel that actually has social implications to it. And it can get written off really quickly if, if you're in a certain camp. And I think a lot of the folks that I was talking to were in a certain camp. They were, they were like, okay, but evangelism, like tell me about how you're going to evangelize people or, or when are you going to start the worship service and didn't see the, the, the possible beauty that could come out of providing jobs and restoration to a community. I think we're actually in a different place now uh, where we're all starting to realize, yeah, that's probably what the church needs to be doing right now, because I don't know about where things are and where you all live, but you know, People aren't flocking to worship services right now. Yeah, this this might be a this might be a, tell me if I'm crazy here. This might be a leap from what you're saying, but it, I'm I'm interpreting what you were saying through the lens of a few things I've been thinking about. Which it sounds like what you're saying is there's this historically, or at least recent history, there's an expectation of the church as kind of just like a box check scenario. So congregants check the box by going to church on Sunday. Pastors check the box by doing a worship service, doing an altar call, inviting people to Jesus. And everybody did their, did their thing. God's going to pat them on the back when they get to heaven. And the, the results or the outcomes aren't really that important, ultimately. I mean, they, they, hopefully it does well, but really for me, it's about checking the boxes I'm supposed to check. And you're saying, well, what if we take those lead metrics that like I had a worship service I went to church on Sunday and you kind of scrambled those up and focused more on the lag, like more on what, what would it look like to put those in the far away outcome? Like people, you know, seeking after a church to find a church after they've been served in all of these other real important ways, like, you know, a place to learn, a place to find uh, people that were investing in them, a place for, you know, stability. Food, stability, yeah, good, healthy food, all those sorts of things. All these change what the lead metrics are to helping people with these things. And then the lag metrics can become like, hey, by the way, where do you, uh, you guys that, you know, help me get healthy food every week, where do you guys go to church or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. It, and, you know, to, I understand what you're saying there. And, and in a lot of cases, that is the kind of the long game. Of, of like, okay, so this group of people actually are tangibly showing that they care for me, my family, my children, my needs, and they're doing this and not necessarily expecting something rich in return. You know, if I could, you know, can't, we're not packaging the bread and putting a tract in it, right? We're just selling bread. Um, it's not a bait and switch kind of thing. Like, hey, you've got it. We're going to sell you this food, but then you've got to come to our, right. it's not that, but yeah, we can yeah, yeah. trust that over time. Yeah. We're gonna love. We're gonna love people, and then they might, you know, begin to. I I was looking back at my doctoral paper, and I don't remember this that well, but I was like, well, that's interesting. This theologian named Karl Barth, who wrote a long time ago, and he talked about when you actually love people, people will naturally begin to wonder about the source of that love. So when you actually do it with integrity. And because you actually care for the person and not for an alter, ulterior motive, Bart's argument was that, oh, no, they'll wonder about the source of the love. Mm. So you don't have to worry about that. So, um, mm. yeah, I, I, I think that we and the church have either relegated ourselves, society has relegate, re- relegated themselves or re- relegated the church to, you know, a big thing in California is it's non-essential or a non-essential kind of thing right now. Um, but um, I think 
I think the other factor too is that we live in a world where words are super cheap. Mm-hmm. And if the church is just known for a, a word message and not a, a tangible message of another kind, um, we're, we're missing something. Mm-hmm. And, and um, one of the other books that I, that I referenced in, in my, the research was a book by Gabe Lyons called The Next Christians. And he talks about this research that shows, hey, the deeds that you do, the actions that back up mean so much in this mm. ge- in this generation of people. Because uh, words are cheap. Everybody's saying a bunch of stuff. So what's true? Well, it's when the words and the actions line up. Especially in the political climate we're at, so often what I hear from especially conservative Christians is that the battle is to preserve like Christian rights and Christian um, what they hold sacred now I under in Christian freedoms. And, and I totally understand that that is like, that is an important, I understand why that is important to people, but at the same time, I'm like, that's just like, giving up freedoms was something just much more common in the early church, like giving up freedoms and like focusing on, Hey, I got to preserve my freedoms. That just didn't really exist. But yet we are, it seems like we are so often that this is probably nothing new. I'm just getting old enough to recognize that it's just so common that that is just so prevalent in our culture, which is Christians just wanting to do everything they can to preserve their freedoms. And like, there are things that could be voted on the Supreme court or uh, laws that can be passed that I might not disagree with, but I guess my problem is that like, but is that where I should expend my energy and my, in my battle is like fighting to keep those things that I hold sacred, or is it to actually reach the people and make a difference? Like you said, uh, uh, bring life to the, to the streets around me instead of just like fighting a, a political battle. I don't know if I have a, a, an actual question about that, but first of all, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and how, I mean, how would you, re- how would you respond to that sentiment? Um, so here are some of my thoughts is that, um, I think that there are scriptures and teachings that exhort us to lay down our sense of freedom or rights for the benefit of another. And, you know, not to dive into not my, what might be a controversial topic, but I'll, I'll share with you how our church has approached this whole COVID-19 stuff. So I've been teaching our church out of uh, the books of the Bible that talk about us being in exile. Well, what did people like Daniel and Nehemiah do in exile? They worked within the foreign government system that they were in, and God still brought about change in, in the midst of that. So there are a lot of churches that have chosen to rebel against the, the current authorities for a variety of reasons, and usually it's the argument about freedom and rights. But I've, I've encouraged our our, our church and our elders are, are with us on this to say, there's also another way. There's another way to exist within the county and state guidelines and work within and work as a partner for the city uh, to seek the welfare of the city and abide by these, these kind of guidelines. That, so that, that does mean a feeling like we're losing our freedom. Um, I think that, that this is my opinion. I, I think that some of the talk about losing our rights and our freedom is that people are fearful because they already see the proverbial kind of writing on the wall that the church has lost its influence um, a lot over the last decades and so we're waning already in our influence and so it just feels like oh here's another attack and if this goes then what's next right so but instead what if we instead of fighting for those things we began to, to love our city well, seek the welfare of the city, as it says in Jeremiah, be a restorer of the city's streets, so much so that the community, um, the community doesn't want you to leave. You know, could it get to that point where because we're the ones that's supporting the school with, with art and music, we're, we're the ones that's providing, you know, stuff for students and communities and, and all the rest um, that you almost don't want the community would say, oh, that would be a tragedy if that church left. Yeah, I, I love that perspective. And I think that idea of like, if you're persecuted, especially for doing the right things, like that, that's, the, that's the kind of the point, right? Like Jesus was persecuted, so you're going to be persecuted. Yeah. 
And when they put you out, they're going to be, you know, thinking they're doing it for the right reasons, but you're, you know, you're the one who's following me. And, and there's, it feels to me like in some ways the American Christian has gotten so enamored actually with the power that that identity held. And now that that is slowly, you pointed out, it's like the air is slowly seeping out of that balloon. Um, now it's, it's, there's a loss of a lot more than, than just, um, you know, a, a, uh, a court case or something like that. It's like, it is literally, I am becoming the lesser in a society where I've always been the greater. And, and for some reason that's that, although it's like totally counter to the narrative of the Bible, that's a position that America, the American white evangelical church, I think has gotten very comfortable in. So this is just me editorializing, but um, I think if anything, um, the church is, is going to be refined over time by, by some of this, like uh, this necessary loss of, or, or I don't say necessary loss, but it's going to be refined by people falling, falling away, people leaving the church who um, don't see the church being what it says it was or said it should be. Yeah. And um, by the people who are still there being shown maybe in some cases to be humble and servant-like and willing to, as your church is, I think, um, be a light in the community and, and others will be shown for the power hungry, the, you know, the, the power brokers, you know, the people who maybe, I don't know, might've been someone in Chattanooga who um, are, might have, might have other motives. So that's, that's, mm -hmm. that's Finn says. It's, it's a new segment yeah. of the podcast. Finn says. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I do want to re be respectful of your time, David. Um, there are two questions I at least want to get to, and they're Finn's second, like eighth and ninth question. Um, Finn, do you want to kick, maybe get into the number eight? Yeah, uh, David, as we've been exploring passion projects, uh, I I've liked to ask almost all of our guests about where they think this thing comes from. Is it innate? Is it something that we just get from this culture that we live in. And I think sometimes there's this notion that it's kind of this like Maslow hierarchy, self-actualization. And, and it's for these people who are, who have so many levels of security that now I can sit around and think about what to do with a couple hours of my day, or I can sit and think like, Oh, do I like my, my life or uh, am I totally fulfilled eight hours a day in my job? Is it that? Is it just that we have the, the blessing of time and, and margin? And that's why we're talking about these things and thinking about these things? Or is there, is that it's actually something that's, that's a deeper part of, of who we are and how we're made to be that it just can't help but come out of us. And that even maybe a different time in, in history or with a different set of circumstances, but that fire would still be burning. So I'd love to hear you, you know, as somebody who's, who studied yeah. history and, and but also from a spiritual and a philosophical lens, uh, do you, yeah. Has this been with us all along? Is this innate or is there something more, I don't know, just about the time and place of history that makes these passion projects a thing? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I don't know if it's always been with us, um, but I, I think what, what I do think is this, is that that I believe that we are created in the image of God. And, and some of what that means is that that God has endowed us with the ability to be creators, to, to be, think, you know, uh, as he created, um, that we also are stewards of and, and creators of new things within that, that creation. Um, and, and I do believe that we're also uniquely made. Um, but I think that that good part can easily get corrupted in, frankly, a North American individualistic society that that also kind of preaches, uh, hey, do what you feel and whatever you feel is important and is, is you. That's like what you feel is really you. I mean, that's that's kind of boils down some of that that message. I mean, if it's I don't know if it's as simple as that, but I think it is some of that, that that your feelings about certain topics or about who you are no one should take that away from you. And, and that's, that's who you are. And I think that that can be dangerous. Um, and so, you know, I think that when you talk about passion projects, I think that we need to define what we mean by passion. 
because um, I look at my own like kind of college experience. I came in, I really loved technical drawing and I thought I, I wanted to create, and I wanted to be an architect. And um, because I was really smart and 17 years old, I chose a college with no architecture program. And, uh, and then my sophomore year, I started taking psychology classes and I was fascinated by it because it's, this is about what motivates people and what people experiences impact them. And so I thought I was going to be a counselor. And then my junior year, I thought, oh, advertising, because advertising uses motivation of people and, and you get to do creative things with selling stuff. And then my senior year, I was like, yeah, I, I don't think I could sell stuff my whole life, you know, to people that they don't really need, just convince them that they need it. And I had a kind of a moral issue with that. So um, nothing against people in advertising, but, um, you know, that's just, so in four years, my passions changed four times. And, and I think that, that one of the, the, the blessings that a, a community of faith, a church could be is to actually help people discover their passions. We obviously see in our, our culture right now, there's this real fascination with personality tests, whether it's on Facebook or whatever, <laughs> strengths finders and Enneagram and all that stuff. And I think all of it is trying to say, hey, yeah, we are made a certain way. But the danger of those tests is that it becomes a label and it doesn't take that more theological belief that says, well, ah, but we're also being changed. Like each and every day we're being changed. So yes, we might have some certain characteristics or giftedness, but it doesn't pigeonhole us or lock us into something forever uh, because we are to be changed as well. One of the things I've seen from those personality tests is I think people see it as a, a way of understanding themselves and like, oh, I see, I do that. And I kind of, it's nice to see an explanation behind it that kind of makes sense. And so I think it, it's partially, yes, then it becomes a label where now people feel like they can't be different than that if they don't, if they don't totally align. But there's also this, I don't feel seen even by me. And those things help kind of shine yeah. a mirror. I came across this quote, I think back in seminary, and I've always held on to it and probably quoted it to a bunch of college students when I work with them is it's the, the one from Frederick Buechner. And it says that your passion your vocation, your calling in life is where your deepest gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. So it's, it's where your deepest gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. So it's not just about what makes you glad, but there's also a deep hunger that exists in the world. And those two things come together and that's often can form your, your calling. So it, it, I think that's for me has always been a, maybe a filter by which to, to ask people to think about their passions. You've mentioned a few times about, or you mentioned where you went to school. I just want to make sure that I understand. You played soccer in college. One year. One year. And you also you also were a kicker on the football team. One Am year. I right? One year. And you also got injured when you were kicking. Yes. Why is this irrelevant? To, <laughs> or is this about failed passion projects? Is, that, <laughs> is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just <laughs> another thanks. And just dig yeah. that up. Another failed passion project. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, boy. Wow. Get Kelsey on. I, I'm really, I'm, so that's why, that's why you brought me on. Yep. Oh, here's the guy that has, has failed at more so. passion projects than anybody else we've ever talked to. You made a lot of bad decisions. <laughs> it's okay. I tore my. I can think of one right now. I can think of one I just made like not too long ago <laughs> at about mm, Can't think of 8 p.m. my time. Yep. More to standard questions. Uh, of course, we can list these in the notes. Um, for the episode. Uh, what are some books you recommend that may or may not be related to this topic, but what are some kind of resources? And then kind of the second part of the question, exercises, tools, practice that you find helpful. So yeah. books and then exercises and tools. Yeah. So this is going to be no surprise to you, Jake. I think that uh, anything by Dallas Willard is a, uh, a wonderful uh, re-envisioning of really what a, a life of following Jesus is like and how much he talked about the kingdom of God and what um, and what that's, that's really what Jesus was inviting us into, uh, wasn't just a ticket to heaven, but I think anything about, and Willard actually writes a lot about, he's got whole works on God and business and, and, uh, the impact that faith has in your work and entrepreneurship and all that kind of stuff. So I think anything by, by Willard, I'm a huge fan. Um, you know, when I was talking about the doctoral project earlier, a really important work for me was a, a book by a guy named John Perkins, who's extremely well-respected in, 
<clears throat> in the community development world, uh, restoring at-risk communities. And just a quote that he said in the mission of the Messiah, the mission of Jesus, and our mission is not complete until we've empowered those living in devastated spaces in the ruined cities to restore and rebuild their own community. Um, the exercise, this is a personal one for me. I always want to be learning. So continuing to learn, and there's so much content out there, but recently I took a class. Uh, my son's going to the University of Virginia, and they let parents take classes online. So I took a class in their business school on design thinking, um, which is really kind of a human-centered approach to problem solving in business and in other areas. And it's amazing how much it applied to my work as a pastor. David, this has been really, really good. It's really refreshing to chat with you and hear you. Um, and again, as, as someone who's been a, uh, a mentor for a long time, even from a distance, um, it's refreshing just to hear you talk, just refreshing to hear your thoughts, refreshing to joke around with you a little bit. Um, so thank you for taking the time to do this. This is incredibly meaningful to me personally and just incredibly excited about this. Um, and so I, I can't wait to kind of put this all together and, and listen to it again. So thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, until next time. Thank you guys. I loved it. Yeah. Hit that outro music. Thanks for listening to the interesting lives of normal people. If you liked what you heard, we'd really appreciate giving us a review and rating on Apple podcasts and telling your friends. It really helps new people find us. Remember that David's wife, Kelsey, has an art business. You can find her art at kelseyburkart.com. And thanks again to Huga for letting us use her music in this episode. You can find more of her music on SoundCloud. <laughs>